One day we will all die, and then we'll be the same as that tree. No me, no you. Be that as it may. You are listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. If you love the pod and can support the work, visit glow.fm slash potabing. There's also a link in the show notes. Thank you to everyone who has and continues to. It means a lot. And thank you to the scores of you who reach out with enthusiasm about what show or topic you think I should tackle next. I'm actually trying to figure all that out. As echoed from day one, this show has been an old friend through good times and bad, and now, by extension, so has this podcast project. Genuinely love doing it and being able to share a piece of me with all of you, hopefully in service of the greatest show ever made. And to my mind, the greatest creative in the game, David Chase. Happy belated birthday to him, by the way. All right, that's my Silvio-style preamble for today. I'm able to slip it in only because Tony's still in limbo. But let's turn our sights and, well, I guess ears too, right? You know what? Activate all the senses. Why should we leave any out? The focus of today's inquiry is the second chapter of Costa Mesa, episode three of season six, Mayhem. HBO synopsis, Silvio divides the spoils from Polly's latest score and heads off a territorial impasse between Bobby and Vito. Carmela turns to an unexpected source for some help with AJ. Christopher turns to an old writing acquaintance, JT Dolan, for help in a new venture. This episode was written by Matthew Weiner and directed by Jack Bender. Originally aired on March 26, 2006. Right off the bat, very Mad Men style opening. Certainly a look we would come to associate with Mad Men very early on, at least. An overhead shot of a Cadillac, that slow, moody approach. Got me thinking about Cadillacs and the Mafia. Cadillac, as the vehicle of choice for gangsters, goes all the way back to Al Capone, who chose the 1928 Town Sedan as his car of choice. He actually had his retrofitted for armor and had it painted green, but not because of what one usually associates with green, money, but because that's the color police cars were back in his day. Today, his car would go for well over a million at auction. We see that it's Polly pulled over, listening to the lyric, Some Sunny Day. Ah, how things start versus how things finish is that moment in a nutshell. Polly's face and disposition now versus the very end of the episode when we see him looking down as an elevator closes. The song is Smoky Places, also Mad Men appropriate, by the Corsairs. This song was also played in a movie called There Goes My Baby, about, among other things, 
the race riots of the 60s in Watts, California. Recall an earlier reference to Watts in the show when Tony B. mentions Sanford and Sons, which took place there. Also got to shout out the great film Training Day, parts of which were filmed around there too. The name Corsair is also interesting because it means pirate. And as we'll see, Polly's about to put on an eye patch and board a Colombian vessel in search of some treasure. And this stray thought just occurred to me. Why didn't Vito fucking seize that ship on his own? But I'm getting ahead of myself a little. Kind of like everybody likening Luka Doncic to LeBron James already. Okay, I admit, I'm in that camp too, so guilty on two fronts of getting ahead of myself. But hey, that's what therapy's for. Pauly's Cadillac is a DeVille. French for of the city. From the body style, it looks to be fifth generation. Also, I don't know about you, but I'm immediately suspicious. Who's Pauly waiting on? In the past situations like this, we might expect a one-on-one with Johnny Sack. But he's in the can. Regardless, something's up. Lone Pauly is rogue Pauly. Vito pulls up. Vito put up solid numbers this episode. And as we see here, he started early and they went to him often. A lot of Vito, a lot of balls, as we'll see. Pauly says, Diary of a Thin Man. Feels like a reference to Ballad of a Thin Man, a song by Bob Dylan from his Highway 61 Revisited album. Described as an I'll Show You song. It was written in response to Dylan's increasing frustration with being asked questions about his work, especially from so-called journalists. See any similarities there? Fitting Vito lyric from that song. The sword swallower, he comes up to you and then he kneels. He crosses himself and then he clicks his high heels. I'm chiseling away at this shit with a shiv over here, guys. Jason Molinaro's with him, his driver. Looks like he's moving up too. Last we saw him loading and unloading a van for Christopher's cigarette motherload haul. If things go the way Vito hopes they will this episode, guy could be one seat away from underboss. Vito says he thinks of his wife, Marie, and his kids when considering Carm's situation. God forbid. Nice clinical foreshadow there. So hold on to that. Vito's got all the right lines lately. Very political. Like he hired a PR firm or crisis management consultant or something. Just a smooth operator. Not quite Sade, but, well, you get the idea. Paulie brings up his mom. Who would take care of her? Except Syl and you guys, he says. As this episode plays out, it'll certainly challenge his assumption. And ours. As to whether or not anyone would give a damn about his ma if things went sideways for him. Reminds you, of course, that he never married and, to our knowledge, has no next of kin. Also, him over-mentioning his ma here is an important story note to file away. Looking back at it, it's a subtle but brilliant way to create stakes for her in ways we haven't seen yet. Or not create stakes at all. All in all, breadcrumbs for us ducks of this show. Vito hands Polly a chit, says, 
Colombians knock off at noon. Then it's empty. Of course, this will become a particular point of issue as Vito's intel was imperfect. Was it intentional or inadvertent? Either way, it's the basis for the title of this episode, as we'll see in a bit. Cut to Pauly entering a hallway with some unknown muscle. Guy called Carrie DeBartolo. Note that Pauly's jumpsuit says G on it. He's in that kind of mode today. It's a new venue, and we immediately get the sense something's going to go down. Has the same feel as that earlier season episode where he and Big Pussy make a score. Christopher's there too, I'm pretty sure. Some Spanish-speaking guy sees them and starts running, tipping off others. A cascade of comedy is about to ensue. Realizing full well that I used the word comedy right before three brutal fatalities. They get to a door. Polly makes them open it. Inside guys are counting serious cash. Then a bizarre, messy shootout ensues. More comedic than anything, but that's clearly the point, right? When has Polly ever been involved in a shootout or, to honor the name of the episode, Mayhem, that wasn't comic gold? But to me, this is another example of a Sopranos Western unfolding. Got me thinking about the messiest shootouts in a Western, and a few came to mind. First, you've got that catching the train sequence at the end of 310 to Yuma, the one with Russell Crowe and Christian Bale. Then there's the classic OK Corral scene from 1993's Tombstone. That long shot of Wyatt Earp's entourage walking is signature. The tagline for that film holds up too. Justice is coming. And finally, you have to include the scene when the train rolls in in Once Upon a Time in the West. That harmonica, the economy of words, Morricone's score. Speaking of music, we go from Morricone to that song in the room, that pulsating bass vocal. It's Donde Están Las Gatas by Nicky Jam. Shout out, of course, to Gata from Dave. Probably my favorite show of 2020. The song only adds to the comedic tensity of the scene. One of their guys gets shot by another one of their guys. Tenuous, I'm sure, but I can't help but see a Dick Cheney reference there. Or the soccer equivalent of an own goal or something. Higher stakes here, of course. Paulie and his muscle each get a clean shot on the guy on the inside. Paulie used to be Johnny Boy's muscle since he was like 16 or something. That he's a crack shot to this day is no surprise. Remember Mikey Palmici? Painted that guy up. He did struggle a little in Pine Barrens. But everybody has an off night. And to be fair, when you're going against a guy who took out 16 Chechen rebels single-handed, you're the underdog, no matter how much of a dead-eye you are coming into the situation. Back to the setting we're in. Money's flying out of the counter thingy. Always wondered how those work. Apparently, the machine pulls each bill past an internal beam of light, which is able to determine the denomination based on how the light is obstructed or altered. The DEA started a program where they tracked money counting machine purchases, but it was shut down because apparently it wasn't a completely above board search and seizure. Go figure. Anyway, 
a guy runs in from behind and grabs Pauly. He's got a knife. But Pauly instinctually knows how to deflect it. He looked like Steven Seagal for a couple, three seconds. The guy knees Pauly in the balls, giving Muscle just enough room to clip him. And Pauly finishes him off with the pocket knife. Payback for the balls and all. Though, I can't figure out what I'd prefer. Getting kicked in the balls or stabbed. No amount of pain, short of death, could be worse than getting a clean shot down there. For us guys out there, let Pauly be our cautionary tale. Now that they've taken everybody out, they bang around for the loot, but are drawing blanks. Pun intended on that one. Then, one last chance power kick against the dishwasher. See what I did there? Knocks it open to reveal stacks on stacks on stacks. What we'll later come to learn is about a million dollars, depending on which one of the wise guy accountants you ask. Bad joke, but I remember when my wife was looking at new dishwashers when we had to replace one that crapped out. She had narrowed it down to two. And I said, pick the one that fits a million bucks cash. Went right over her head. What are you going to do? Then, nice touch, an elevator dings, and we cut to AJ and Meadow walking into the hospital. Greeted by Bobby. Swiftly, I might add. Everybody's wooing every member of Camelot over here. Christopher's there too, or Kugin, as Meadow calls him. She heads over to see her dad as Chris and Bobby loom over AJ. They know he was at South Mountain Arena yesterday, trying to buy a gun from an asshole in a snack shop. Asshole in a snack shop needs to be a series of some kind. Host goes around the world, hitting up snack shops, seeking out the biggest assholes, and documenting them in their natural habitat. South Mountain Arena is the toughest rec center in Essex County. They play hockey there. Tony knew AJ were there and was feeling cute. He might say, like he did to Ponte Corvo, what are you, a hockey player now? It's been since renamed to honor a former governor of the Garden State. This begs the question, couldn't someone like AJ be a little more resourceful with procuring a piece? Granted, if Jackie Jr. was still around, he might have gone to him first. But it just feels like AJ could have been a little more buttoned up about it, more discreet. The operative word there, of course, is could. Note, he drops a Godfather 2 line. Namely, when he says, difficult, not impossible. Gotta be completely inadvertent, though, right? Despite his proximity to the whole thing, I doubt he's versed in the intricacies of the filmic vernacular. Your dad does not want you to get involved, they say. Another subtle reference to one, right? Where Don Corleone never wanted this life for Michael. You got to channel that rage elsewheres, they continue. And they are kind enough, selfless enough to offer some suggestions. Golden gloves is mentioned, but AJ in boxing? These uncles and cousins hang around him much? Did make me wonder, though, if Pauly had ever been in one of those tournaments. 
what with his history and all, as we'll see in a bit. If not boxing, they offer up a couple other suggestions. Dumbbells or more sex. Chris showers some affection on him and sends him off. What we just witnessed was their version of a good deed for the day. The rest of the episode, though, it's about them and what they're owed. Whether you're on a stretcher or speechless and propped up on antiarrhythmias. Cut to Carm, watching Tony from afar. I've done something similar before to someone who was in the hospital. Look at them from different angles, vantage points. Probably largely subconscious, but I think there's some rationale to it. When you're confronted with those situations, especially suddenly, perspective helps. Meadow comes up. There are a bunch of doctors around Tony. Carm says they're doing rounds. Plepler and the Indian girl. Sounds about right. AJ's shirt reads, most likely to Bogart. Bogart means to hog or not to share. Somewhat fitting, one episode removed from him stacking his plate full of food. Notice, he's sipping his drink like Dr. Elliot Kupferberg, whose opinion on this current predicament Tony finds himself in could certainly be a scene for some comic relief. Assuming, of course, it was top of mind enough for Melfi to want to talk about or explore. But I mean, how could it not be? He flips because he forgot Carm's sweater. He doesn't generally like being a piss boy. Unable to deal with issues on a more macro level, he does his own version of Weezer's sweater song. Hold this thread as I walk away. Watch me unravel. I'll soon be naked, lying on the floor. I've come undone. Nice Sopranos touch point. When discussing the song once, Rivers Cuomo, Weezer's frontman, said it was supposed to be a sad song, but everyone thought it was hilarious. Now, Sopranos certainly wasn't, from what we can tell, supposed to be sad, but I thought that sentiment fit nicely with the comedy amidst the chaos descriptor. Dr. Plepler comes out, and Carm wants to know if he was made aware that Tony's eyebrows moved earlier. Ah, lay people, doctors must think. If the message wasn't relayed, she was going to lose it. Nice, passive-aggressive way to make sure everyone else was paying as close attention as she was. Great life exemplar of how, in most instances, that isn't the case. Not just in matters of health, but on most things. We've all got those tipping points, if you will. And Carmela's was on full display here, keeping it together as best she could. Plepler, the hardliner over here, doubles down. Recalibrate your expectations. When he said that, not sure why, but it reminded me of Major Jigsaw and the core, the core, the core. Or even Viper from Top Gun. Just blunt force trauma couched in more syllables to dampen the blow. He continues, they can't maintain his blood pressure at a level they'd like. Sustained high blood pressure, of course, is a risk factor for things like heart attacks and strokes. And until his fever drops and his white blood cell count comes down, not much can be done. Tony's white blood cells would naturally be up as his body's fighting off the potential for a massive infection from his wound. Too many white blood cells, though, can overly tax and stress the body. 
especially the heart. And that's really the crux of this episode, right? The heart of the matter, if you will. Does Tony have enough heart to live? Don Henley, with those lyrics, would have a lot to say about this episode, especially the end and the part about letting go. But on the bright side, he's really fighting, the doctor says. Which is the same thing I thought when I heard Oscar de la Hoya was joining the lineup of once prize fighters entering the ring again. Not sure where you fall on that trend, but I feel like the only one who's watchable is Mike Tyson. Why, I wondered? For the same reason you'd watch Andre Agassi play tennis again, or watch Michael Jordan play basketball again. They transcended their sport. Anyway, they all go in, and Meadow lays down next to her dad, which will become a bit of a thing later with a nurse. And with that, we cut to coma Tony, sleeping, about to wake up, which I thought was a nice sort of foreshadowing that the real Tony will slowly wake up too. He notices Costa Mesa brightness seeping through his curtains. Then he picks up an envelope that was pushed through his door. Hotel bill? I'm old enough to remember when they used to do that. But no, it's a summons. Crystal Monastery versus Kevin Finnerty. Certainly less dramatic than the way we usually see people get served on screen, but effective nonetheless. The Bardo, it seems, isn't quite as cinematic. Got me thinking about the most impactful or memorable service of process scenes on screen, and one automatically jumped to the top of my mind. The one from the Michael Mann film, The Insider, when Jeffrey Wigand, Russell Crowe's character, is at the airport minding his own business. Crowe, by the way, coming right back to Pada Bing, won an Oscar the year Tom Hanks was nominated for Castaway. Now, he did win for Gladiator, and it was tough competition. But Castaway, man? Making grown-ass people weep while watching a man talk to a volleyball? If that doesn't earn you some serious hardware, nothing will. I mean, Crow was opposite Joaquin Phoenix. Hanks was opposite a fucking volleyball. Not a person. Not an animal. Not a fever dream with people in it. A volleyball. But what is this? Some hashtag referendum on the Oscars and their shot callers now? Cut two. A car pulling up a zen-like driveway. In general, the world could use more zen-like driveways. I watched this Disney Plus docuseries on Japan with my son recently, and it reinforced two longtime passions. Interests, curiosities. Japanese design and spending extended time in Hokkaido. I'm not holding my breath on the latter. Anyways, back on that driveway for a sec. That tree overhanging the road. That curvy oak. How does the trunk get like that? Either way, the tree trunk was symbolic, as are trees in this series. This tree was falling over, but still firmly rooted like Tony. It was fighting to stay up. 
relying on its roots and branch network for support. Kind of cheesy, but I couldn't help but think it as Tony passed underneath it. There's a tree like that at a bend on my street, and I think about this every time I drive under it, when I'm not on a call or refereeing between kids. Tony walks up, catches a glance at a Buddha statue as the monks come out and surround him. Note there are three of them. Love the detail of him putting his suitcase down and putting his hands up. I saw two things there. A biblical counterbalance to the Eastern tradition and a Zen Western over here. Also note, something that would eat Phil Leotardo up. Tony's ties askew. Also interesting that the ringleader of this crew of monks, the same guy that was also at the hotel last episode, is rifling through his prayer beads while receiving Tony. Yet he's lacking a certain inner peace reflective of what he's doing. Feels forced. Also note, his younger cohort is particularly jacked. He's definitely the one sneaking bootleg DVDs of Rocky training montages at night in his monastery chamber. Do I really look like this guy? Tony asks. Note that as he asks, he's juxtaposed next to the Buddha statue. Too good. And for the record, I did see a flash resemblance for a second. So, what's the answer to whether or not he looks like Finnerty? To a certain extent, all Caucasians look alike. This, of course, from a monk standing next to two other monks wearing the same thing, including expressions. There's a body of thought that this is a slingshot in the eye of American culture, consumerism, and particularly the notion of rugged individualism, which begets self-first behavior. But as much as I'm ready to pull the trigger on a reach, I don't think this is that. Credit the writing for creating a chasm of possibility for us to sit here and meditate on it in the first place. The scripts, after all, are religious texts in their own right for those who worship at the altar of storytelling and creative pursuits. As Tony tries to explain his behavior yesterday, saying he's worried about what he might have done, which is also code for the real Tony being concerned about being blocked from ascending to that big casino in the sky, he's cut off and met with, there's no fraud without a fairy tale. Taking that one on the chin, he tells them he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The Rocky workout video monk laughs. But Tony forges ahead, tells them he's in this strange city, certainly pulling no punches on his time spent in Costa Mesa. At which point the ringleader monk, remembering his manners, invites him inside. There he asks them to help him find Finnerty, and they laugh again. One day we will all die, and then we'll be the same as that tree. Which of course takes me back to that curvy trunk tree. Not a bad tree to be. Just saying, one is to be like a tree. Those jacaranda trees around L.A. are pretty cool too. 
Anyways, no me, no you. Internalized as, let's work this out. I haven't had occasion to drop this in a negotiation yet, but I'd like to. There's nothing that can't be worked out if two people are at a table together. A sit-down, if you will. And this notion will, of course, have implications for the series once Tony's out of this bardo. The perspective he gets from no me, no you yields a couple first downs as he marches down the field. Will he get to the end zone? Remains to be seen. So, there's hope, right? Wrong. These monks are like the Pittsburgh Steel Curtain. Tony goes for it on fourth and goal, but is met with, be that as it may. Be that as it may. We need heat. Someone must take responsibility. And that, for the purposes of this show, was a Juan Bautista bat flip. Because we cut straight back to New Jersey Tony. Carmela's with him. Deep in a Sue Grafton book called G. She's not short for gangster, which would of course be fitting, but it's short for gumshoe, which is about, among other things, a hitman. Grafton, of course, is known for her alphabet series of detective novels. But speaking of gangsters in their own right, Janice comes in, says she just had Chinese food, which I can't help but think was a dig at her brother, who, if he heard that, machines would start bleeping all over the place on account of motherfucking goddamn orange peel beef. Cut to Carm at a pathmark, still going strong. Her and the pathmark, that is. She's got a can of Maxwell House coffee that until the advent of Starbucks and artisanal experiential coffee was the number one selling coffee brand in the United States. Its slogan, good to the last drop, is apparently attributed to former U.S. President Andrew Jackson. AJ, the mark at the end of the path, if you will, Carmela's path, is Dr. Melfi. There she is. What are the chances? Also, adding to the theme of Carmela encountering people at the grocery store, or maybe I should say people encountering her first, like Melfi and Angie before her. Recall before her, Cadillac gets touched up by Tony. Note that when they talk to each other, an orange display is in between them. Oranges. We learn that Carmela got her note, and Melfi says she's been calling the hospital too. Nice way of the show reminding us that it goes on and exists outside the confines of the weekly episodes we devour. Love that it's able to three-dimensionalize this world for us with a single short exchange like this. Melfi offers to talk to anyone or run interference with the doctors at any time. A great turn of phrase that means to interfere on someone's behalf or to throw yourself into harm's way to help out a friend. Carmela's appreciative but says she's got plenty of people she can talk to. Does she, though? And I get the stress and lack of sleep and all, but was that dig warranted? Feels like she's still reeling a little from that chat with Roe in the cafeteria from an episode ago. 
and she found in Melfi an easy target to slip a jab on. Note, she hasn't talked to a priest yet, either. Cut to Silvio's house. His wife, Gabby, answers the door, power posing like she just watched the Amy Cuddy TED Talk. It's Benny, Sil's new driver. Interim driver, at least. But a good move and look for him. Proximity to power. Reminds you, of course, of Frank Underwood in House of Cards, right? Proximity to power deludes some into thinking they wield it. This notion plays out throughout this episode from a bunch of different guys who really just show they're nothing more than a series of bobbleheads without Tony at the helm. Benny lets Sill know about the Pauly thing with the Colombians. The score was a million plus. Dr. Evil over here. Also note that Sill's reading the back of the cereal box at the table. Stark contrast from Tony, who would at least be rifling through a paper scanning headlines. To me, reading the cereal box suggested nervousness and inability to settle in, whereas reading a newspaper over breakfast would indicate calm and control. Sill's drinking orange juice, by the way. Second time in as many scenes we've seen oranges. And this episode, we're just getting started. Moments later, Sill's in the bathroom getting ready. Gabby walks in on him using an inhaler. Guy's asthma's acting up. She's proud of him for getting out there in the arena despite his flare-up. Acting boss, he says. He hoped the day would never come. He's following a long line of acting bosses in the DeMeo crime family. Which, of course, has always been a nice play on words since all of them are, in fact, literally acting. She thinks he sold himself short all these years. But still explains, all he wanted to do was carve out a piece and enjoy some grandkids. Note the Japanese characters directly behind his head as he talks to Gabby while she fixes his tie. I looked him up and... While the smaller characters are too small to read, the three primary characters translate to Buddha's teaching, Zen, and Buddha's providence. Gabby continues her pep talk. He's doing a job no one else can. Tell that to Vito. Benny's honored to drive him. Benny's shaping up to be an artful politician. And he's firm without being obnoxious. Was that a thinly veiled dig at former leadership? Speaking of acting bosses, he tells her Jackie thought it should be him that gets the boss job after he's gone, not Tony. Recall those conversations from early season one. But Silvio says he's always been a more behind-the-scenes type of guy. Advice, strategy. To his credit, he's right. I was always kind of uncomfortable with this new arrangement, however emergency, interim, it may be. Part of that is training from one where we learn that Tom Hagen is just a consigliere. And again, if you look at the org charts of this thing of ours, traditionally, consiglieries are branched off the main tree. They aren't underbosses or vice presidents. Safe to say, though, their governing documents aren't as intentional and established as the Constitution. But what is this, comparative politics now? Francis Fukuyama over here. So he's playing the reluctant leader, the accidental El Jefe. But Gabby, she draws a line in the sand. 
But here you are. The times make the man, not the other way around. A malaprop, I believe, of something Napoleon said once. Speaking of, recall back in season one, Isabella. I believe Silvio mentions Napoleon by name. Later in Strong Silent Type, Pauly mentions him when he's talking to the Sing motherfucker guy from Departed while discussing the Piomai painting. In Rat Pack, season five, Tony's at a place called Napoleon's. Finally, Napoleon plays a role in this episode too. In fact, the dessert kind is offered to Vito at the height of his Napoleonic complex, no less. Last bit on this scene, great autopsy observation about the repeated use of mirrors in these interactions, perhaps conveying their two-faced ambition. Cut to Chris talking to Vito about how Asians flip for horror films, plus the other ancillary downstream exploitations, perhaps? A movie motherload? We'll never know because Silvio comes in with Benny. Ever wonder why Christopher rolls his eyes when he hugs Sil there? He doesn't think he should be acting boss instead, does he? Air apparent and all? More like air presumptive, but what are you going to do? Silvio instructs Benny to get some coffee up to the house, a signal that Silvio's delegations may prove to be a day late and a dollar short. Vito complains about Bobby again, making collections in Roseville, portending that there's about to be some big ripples in the otherwise still waters of Lake Bobby. I had to say this to set up for next season, but without context, it won't mean much. But since we're almost to the end, I'm going to get a little cute from time to time. Oh, you're going to get fucking cute now. Silvio says, let's do a sit-down already. Then Pauly comes in. Could be a patient himself, the way he's walking. He's with little Pauly. He healed nicely after that debacle at the Esplanade. All these guys, Benny, little Pauly, Christopher Showdown with the Bevilacqua brothers. Yeah, I know they're not brothers, but I have to keep saying it because invariably someone reaches out to let me know the precise parentage of Matt Bevilacqua and his home slice, Sean Gismonti. Complete with paternity tests, DNA gene sequences, and all that Ancestry.com shit. But I love you, appreciate you, you know who you are. Still takes another hit of his inhaler, to which I thought, if Johnny Sack thought glasses looked weak, what would he make of this? Vito asks Paulie about his cut. Better ask now, while Silvio's still breathing, he's thinking. Better get his in before everybody drops like flies and he's the last man standing. You believe this guy? He should have lost some weight in that nose. Keep it out of everybody's business. I'm working on it. In the snack corner of the waiting area, Silvio conducts his sit-down. Which, the imagery alone is pure comedy. Takes the word makeshift to a whole new level. Bobby says it was Junior's neighborhood. Now it's his. Guy paid his dues and is going to assert himself unlike never before. This is in large part because of Janice, right? Her influence is creating this impatient, irrational side of Bobby we haven't really seen before. He's moving around almost like he's in fast forward. 
Vito's response? How phenomenal. It was Eugene's going on three years, and Eugene was with me. That expression literally means go to Naples, but is equivalent to go to hell. Also, there's that number three again. Bobby's rebuttal is you should have never had it to begin with, except for the beef with the tasty freeze root. But Junior already ruled on it. Once you've finished laughing at the sheer ridiculousness of the minutiae in this conversation, Tasty Freeze is a chain of franchised soft-serve establishments. Interestingly enough, their corporate headquarters is not too far away from Tony's Bardo in Costa Mesa. And the one-time parent company that owned them also owned Stewart's, a place mentioned in Members Only. The brand, Tasty Freeze, is also mentioned in the John Mellencamp song, Jack and Diane. Anyway, here's a little story about this fucking guy, right? Also note, Vito's more handsy this episode than Gary Payton guarding MJ. Syl wants to know how much money they're talking about. Like Carmine. And to Johnny Sack's chagrin, it's always about the money. Remember that conference call with Junior? Those olives? Vito says three Gs a week. Bobby says that miserable Gene lowballed him. It's more like five Gs. Suggesting, of course, that Eugene was holding back. Sill's decision? For the time being, Bobby's the victor and gets the spoils. But that for the time being shit doesn't sit well. Not for us. And as we'll see shortly, not with Bobby or Vito. It's like Blues Traveler once said. The hook brings you back. And for the time being, is as open-ended a hook as it comes with bait that'll get them biting every time. But to extend the late 90s, early 2000s music metaphors, Sill says to Bobby, you get what you give. He's got to kick up 20% to Vito. And this new radical brand of leadership, see what I did there? Throws both guys off kilter. Naturally, one more time, I promise, I'm almost done. Bobby won't let go. He's confused about time being. Define your terms, Syl. And right then, ladies and gentlemen, is where Lillehammer, the series, was born. Why do you speak Norwegian? For now. We'll see how much is there. For now, in Norwegian, by the way, is till na. Cut to Carmen Meadow walking into Tony's room. They find Barbara and her husband sleeping in there. They look like shit, but they're good. Nothing a little Irish spring can't fix. That had unapologetic product placement written all over it, by the way. Carm says good morning to Tony, and we're right back to Coma Tony or Kevin Finnerty. Maybe Irish spring is what inspired this cut. He's back at the hotel bar. Always wondered if there was a connection between Carmela's persistence and sending him right to the bar. He's finishing up one drink and others on the way. Rocks again, as opposed to neat. Tells the bartender he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he says his uncle had memory loss. Wonders if it's maybe hereditary. Subconscious junior rearing his head in the bardo. Got me wondering about what's hereditary and what's not. 
I went to my wife, who specializes in that shit, and she shooed me away, said it's more complicated than it's worth. To which my response to her was, fill leotardos to Vito at the dinner table. I never forget. The diagnosis has Tony wondering, is it possible? I am Kevin Finnerty. We're wondering the same thing too, and it's kind of sort of worth mentioning here because it's been a huge topic of discussion over the years. Is Tony Kevin Finnerty? My simple view is no. It is what it is on its face. A briefcase mishap. But this Tony is different than the Tony we first met in Melfi's office. His head framed by the legs of a nude statue. This Tony, I think, is a version of Tony that might have been. Had he finished Seton Hall, perhaps. Had different parents. Note the bar's empty. Interesting, given that he's wrestling with identity to some degree. So the only place to be when you're doing that, right? The moment resembles that feeling some people say they feel in a big city. When you're wrestling with grand questions or stuff in general, it can feel like the loneliest place on earth. Not unlike that island in Castaway. On that note, he looks out at the beacon again, and we're back to the room. The song playing, First Cut is the Deepest, sung by Cheryl Crow, but originally written by Cat Stevens. No doubt, another indirect reference to Stevens and his body of work. Recall Rat Pack back in season five, Lady Darbonville. Lorraine. AJ's looking out the window blankly as if he were listening to Cat Stevens' father and son through earbuds off the T for the Tillerman album, considered a top album of all time by Rolling Stone. Meadow comes in with the Star Ledger, Star Ledger, and a couple of slices. They both dive in, and we cut to Sill in a bathroom stall. Great cut. The coffee sits atop the business pages and a sufficient additional stack below it. He's making up for that morning cereal box. Guy's settling into the role. Captain Industry over here's got to read up. Not real busy though, right? Looked like he planned to spend a significant amount of time in there. One takeaway though, boss or no boss, he's still got to plunk down in a public restroom like the rest of us. The regularness of life. Vito comes in, Case the joint because he knew Silvio was in there. Asks about the Orange Street takedown. There's Orange again. The Colombians. Vito says his guy had the tip. He's right. He handed it to Pauly. Did he lie about the timing, though? Create that debacle in the first place. The mayhem, if you will. Vito's agenda is clear. Credit to him for not dancing around it. Carmela gets T's cut under the circumstances. Correct? It's a fucking rhetorical question. He knows the mafia mandate. He's just gauging everybody's allegiance to it under a new set of circumstances. Silvio agrees, reluctantly. Vito's building a coalition of sorts here. Pauly comes in, tells Vito the ladies' room's next door. Vito says he could reach it from here. 
that a signifier of certain physical endowments? Pauly abruptly looks back when he hears a voice coming out of the stall, like it's satanic black magic, sick shit. They're talking about how grim the ICU is and how brave Carmela is. Establishing baseline pleasantries, you know, while someone's taking a shit. Vito says he's giving T's piece of his half of the Colombian thing to Sill for Carmela. Paulie calls him Bluto, Popeye's arch nemesis, and tells him to hold up. He did all the heavy lifting. They argue over who did what. Paulie calls what he was put through mayhem, though he mispronounces it, and hence we have our Malaprop title. But again, why did Vito outsource that shit to Paulie? It's always been a bit unclear. Maybe Vito's one of those guys that likes to set shit up, connect dots, and take a piece. But that doesn't really fit his profile, being a top earner and all. He's a worker, not a middleman. Besides, he's got to know if he wants to be a boss. The middleman always gets squeezed out. To great comedic effect, Vito asks Sill if he wants to weigh in. This as the camera cuts to Sill's feet sneaking through the toilet stall. Too good. Sill sips his coffee for a beat before it breaks half and half. Kick Tony's piece to me. I'll deal with it. Note, he gives this instruction, but they later don't follow it. If anybody's going to get credit for a grand gesture, it's going to be them. Paulie says he'll have his 80K ready. And Vito wonders how that's 20% of a million. Paulie says it was only 750K. What's he, a money counting machine now? He continues, have a cookie, you're delirious. Fat guys, even former ones, still get the fat jokes. You might be able to shed the weight, but not the jokes. Vito says Tommy cased that shithole. First of all, who's Tommy? And second, casing involves counting precise bills? Is Tommy out here counting cards like Raymond Babbitt and Rain Man? Silvio says enough with the accounting. 100K a piece, period. Their version of accounting, after all, is envelope thickness. Decimals? Fuck that shit. Sooner than later, Paulie. I got a piss for us. You want half for that too? As he winces in pain, we cut to Christopher's friend, JT, the writer, telling an audience overlooking an expansive view of Lower Manhattan how he would blow 20 residuals at the track. Residuals, of course, are essentially royalty checks on a piece of content's downstream exploitations. Things like syndication, DVD releases, and streaming deals. JT's talking to a room full of writers encouraging them to harness their hang-ups. The writers of this show love to take shots at themselves. Think back to being unable to pawn an Emmy. Got me wondering, if writers are hung up, what about aspiring ones? He continues, but we're also hung up on our own hang-up. We mythologize our inner Narrative. We mythologize our inner narrative. Does that mean we put 
ornamental end caps to otherwise ordinary things that we put lipstick on pigs, that kind of thing. His analogy, Beowulf, who is Grendel, but the habit, the disease, he wonders. Beowulf's a poem of alliteration. If you've noticed, I've tried to do a lot of alliteration leading up to this point. Beowulf, the hero of the epic, comes to the aid of a king who is fighting off a monster called Grendel. So does JT mean that Beowulf, in slaying the monster, slayed himself or a version of himself? Another thought that occurred to me, is the rationalization of a degenerate gambler credible? Important aside in Beowulf, there are three antagonists. Caught me trying to puzzle together associations of Beowulf and Tony Soprano. But I think Tony had more than three adversaries. The main one, of course, being his own mother. Yet there's a part of me that can't help but divide it up as follows. His family, his other family, and himself. And I think that of the three, I wonder if his greatest antagonist was himself. Whether his decisions and actions or inactions would ultimately prove to be his downfall. Like, he can survive gunshot wounds, but can he survive his own mind and the decisions that flow from it? I'll explore this thought again in the very last episode in the very final moments. Benny and Chris's sponsor, Murmur, walk in. JT thinks they're part of the Writers Guild, so he keeps lecturing. Guy didn't hang around Christopher enough to be able to spot a wise guy? Benny hits him over the head with a laptop and knocks him into tomorrow. Nice little detail there, too. A writer getting clubbed over the head with his primary instrument. A nice modern-day analog or variation on the theme of the pen is mightier than the sword. Cut to a car with a screaming Chris. Thoughtful angles, this entire sequence. He's upset about JT's fisheye. Chris is doing this guy a favor, a great service. He'll wipe JT's obligation in exchange for a script. He says it, even though he doesn't really mean it. Why would he let an easy squeeze off the hook like that? Easiest kind of guy to collect from. Why do you think he set his scopes on him at the card game the way he did in the first place? JT says he can't write a feature. He just committed to a staff job. To which I thought, unions. What about weekends? Christopher's aspiration is to make a digital horror movie. Huge profits. He fucking wants in. Is he right? Kind of. In general, fear is cheap. The imagination does most of the work. We just need to be led down the path a little. The psychology is actually fascinating. When you sign up for a horror or thriller, you're first and foremost signing up for escapism and a couple of jolts to your being. To accomplish that, you just need a premise. Something like a couple of friends go into the woods in search of a mythological witch. Or a couple records their bedroom at night because weird shit keeps happening. Movies based off those premises grossed an insane sum of money and were made on relatively shoestring budgets. 
Sometimes the premise is all you need. Like, thinking back, I don't even really remember how Blair Witch or Paranormal Activity ended. I mean, I know something bad happened. But the final result was less important than the prompt of it all. And just the journey through the unknowns. It's beautiful magic when it works. And horror is also evergreen. At some point, at some time, we're always going to be in the mood for it. It's a great counterbalance to other stuff we consume. And lastly, quality isn't as important. For some reason, we don't expect flashy effects, overproduction, or mind-blowing dialogue. We just genuinely want to be scared and somewhat entertained. And according to Chris, anyone can do it. Douchebags who never made a film before. I'd argue for that very reason, it's a great proving ground. It's a genre that levels the playing field of breaking into filmmaking. Benny offers up another example. Saw. Cost 400k to make, took in 100 mil worldwide. Reminds me of something I read recently about Jeff Bezos. Back in 1994, when he was raising money for Amazon, he took 60 meetings with various people asking for $50,000 in exchange for roughly 1% of his company, Amazon. 38 of them said no. The other 22, their 50,000 initial investment is worth north of 7 billion today. That's like a 14 million percent return. JT, perhaps channeling a little bit of his own inner Jeff Bezos, starts negotiating with a gangster and pointing his finger to boot. I'm 100% well. Interesting turn of phrase. If I deliver the script, we're good. Chris mocks the lingo, which as we'll soon see, just tacks on to his growing list of hypocrisies. I'm unclear on the origin of the lingo. If anyone knows, hit me up. Christopher is just really fucking dark here, more than ever before. And he actually says those words, which makes it even more menacing. What comes next is Matthew Weiner telling you how to pitch an idea. And perhaps even better, how to pitch a bad idea, but still make it saleable. Saw meets Godfather 2. Proven track record, both genres. A young wise guy, assassin, gets betrayed by his people. A Christopher type, one wonders? They whack him and leave his body parts in dumpsters all across the city. Put back together by science, or maybe something supernatural, he gets payback on everyone who fucked them over, including the woman he was engaged to. She was screwing the boss the night he got clipped. Yep, it's definitely, at least somewhat, autobiographical. Chris wants to meet tomorrow at the Bing to finalize before it goes to script. Who's got the lingo now? Then JT gets pushed out of the car as it drives away. This is kind of funny by itself in that most of the time when people get kidnapped and thrown out of cars, the stakes are much more grave. Here, we're talking about a guy penning a script. Another example of tropes getting turned upside down and reimagined or reinvented on David Chase's terms. He walks back into the building, 
checking his blood on his forehead. A guy that mythologizes his inner narrative. Certainly mythologizes their degree of blood loss after a brush-up. What's the word for that? Hypochondriac. He sees the writers exiting the building. A room full of writers. And you did nothing. No. But at least they got a good story out of it. Cut to Sill. Loitering in the hospital. Where it's family time only. But he's undeterred. Even after the nurse threatens to call the hospital administrator. Carm's inside Tony's room with Father Intintola. There he is. Sill tells her a big package is coming her way. She knows what that means and takes it in stride. Mentions insurance won't cover physical therapy. That's what this thing of ours health insurance plan is for, though. She knows that. Carm invites him in to say hello, and he agrees, reluctantly, lest he take a hit from his inhaler in front of the boss. Note as they walk in, we see the pinboard again, and no discernible Ojibwe saying, only cards. I point that out only to attempt to get a handle on who put it there. Tony has a point of view on it in the next episode, but it's always been a little opaque and open-ended, as with most aspects of the show. Silvio looks down at him and gets emotional, puts his hand around his wrist. Actually super compelling and genuine. Right there, with that single gesture, Silvio separates himself leaps and bounds from everybody else. Cut to Vito's house. New venue. Marie and Phil and his wife are enjoying dinner and laughs. Vito's wife, Marie, is played by Elizabeth Bracco, who is Lorraine Bracco's sister. This Vito-Phil dynamic is new and important. And true to life, it neatly displays the progression of things. Sets it up. The way things start versus the way they end up. Also, putting that other thing aside for a sec, here we see a purported future boss warming up to a New York acting boss. Importantly, Phil and Vito aren't related. Phil is related to Vito's wife, Marie. They're second cousins. Phil's wife says she has Napoleons, those creamy pastries, but also fruit for a certain party. This to Vito. Both the Napoleon statement and the fruit statement. Swift work, Mr. Weiner. Phil compliments him, says he looked like John Travolta when he married her cousin. John Travolta, by the way, was born in New Jersey. When alone, Phil brings up the Bacala claim, says it's bogus, says not his style, the way Sill acted. Does he really mean that, though? Or is it more about trying to upset the apple cart over in North Jersey without having to lift too many fingers? Next, Vito takes a shot at Carmela, says Sill's more worried about her than the fucking earners. Phil commiserates says he's keeping Ginny in butter brickle. Great visual. The alliteration in an episode that mentions Beowulf. And choice to give that line to Phil. Can't help but seeing him test zingers like that 
in between flips of grilled cheeses on top of prison radiators. Speaking of the can, he says his brother Billy took care of Patty and the grandkids those last years he was in jail. Grandkids? Where were the parents, I've always wondered. Phil, reflecting on his brother, says it's hard to forget. I don't forget. Note that he's saying that to Vito. Pocket that for later. I don't forget is part of a string of one-line heavyweight uppercuts Phil will become known for. It feels like with Johnny Sack in prison, a bit of transference is taking place. And the Phil Leotardo character is the lucky recipient. Just moments after Phil says he never forgets, Vito says he forgot what they were talking about. But did he? Or was that him just leading the dog to the plate of steaks? I think it was the latter, as we see a bit of Vito's political and coalition-building savvy. No, he's not Josh Lyman or Toby Ziegler from the West Wing, but his nuances this episode put him right up there with those political operatives. His language, of course, just a little more, come se dice, colorful. Next, real quick, note the stereo behind Phil. Hi-fi, suggesting maybe Vito's a bit of an audiophile. Then Vito quickly remembers. Oh yeah, Carmela. Again, his pause and sudden recollection was timed. It's almost like Paulie warming up to Johnny Sack when he was in the can. Not quite team switching level, but certainly keeping your options open level. Vito's wife returns and offers coffee. Vito asks and gestures for hot water with lemon. If you're going to ask for that, got to do it with the hand gesture, right? Hot water with lemon, by the way, supposedly a digestive aid. Vito asks the question they've been dancing like Fred Astaire around for a couple of three minutes. How can I short Carmilla? They let the weight of that question linger for a beat. Vito doesn't want to give her a large sum of money only to watch Tony die the very next day. This guy an actuary now? Cuts a little Pauly, helping Pauly ice his balls. Pauly's pissed about the money too. It's interesting though when you think about it. How would Carmela have ever known about this score? She doesn't know about the granular details of the business on a day-to-day level. There's also a sexist component to this reticence. Like, they'd kick up Tony's piece ordinary course of fucking business without blinking an eye. But it's different for her. Yet none of this is enough to withhold. These guys don't necessarily see all the permutations at like internet speed, certainly not like Tony, but they are aware enough to know that it could leak out through conversation. Everybody in and out of the hospital, or worse, assuming Tony recovers, he would become aware of that score at some point. And the reparations, back pay, restitution, or whatever the fuck, would be far more steep than the package he's got to prepare for Carmela right now. He's a fucking vegetable, but I still got to pay tribute to the princess of Little Italy. That, by the way, is the name of a song by Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. Also, tea's a vegetable. Guy's sentimental as fuck about his ma. But tea? Fuck that. 
said with my hand up, like Pauly. But this is another example that every guy in this thing is scrambling right now and looking out for numero uno. Back to those Buddhists, too. Even them this episode, preaching being one with trees and disavowing materiality, even they have a boiling point. They qualified away their ethos with a simple, be that as it may. At a certain temperature, certain level, they're going to make somebody pay. As mentioned last time, that's more a commentary of the state of things in America than anything. You can get sued by a Buddhist monk. Little Pauly offers up some diplomacy. The boss's wife. What are you going to do? Fuck. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Comic gold. The position he's in, who he's talking tough to, every atomic bit of it. The next morning, Pauly's clipping coupons. Full fucking circle on the character canvas of this guy. The comedic relentlessness goes on. The coupon he's clipping is for Band-Aids. And the ad reads, works as hard as you, no matter how wet the job gets. Can't help but see a wet work reference there. Coupons for 55 cents off. But he's cutting it with the precision of Dr. Buchvar in Lenox Hill. His phone rings. Note the entomans on the top of his fridge. Those are for when Ma visits. It's Silvio on the other end, making sure Paulie's bringing a big piece of pie for Carmela. I'm all for speaking in code. But maybe try a little harder? If the phones are tapped or someone is surveilling them, even an agent that graduated bottom of his fucking class would be able to connect the dots on that one. PVC pipe delivery to the spec house. Something. Anything. Is PVC pipe even used anymore? Is it considered sustainable? Anyway, Silvio takes a puff from his inhaler. That detail felt like the burden of keeping tabs and making asks of the guys was breaking down his insides. Perhaps unimpressed, certainly ambivalent, Polly finishes up with his coupons. He's in no rush to part with his money, and evidently in no rush to take orders. He's like a player who sits at the end of the bench, steering clear of the cluster of players around the coach who's drawing up an inbound play. Who am I thinking of recently that did that as if to make a point? Russ Westbrook. We watch Pauly clip away and then cut to Carmela in Tony's hospital room. Frank Sinatra, the chairman of the board, is singing something, too brief to tell. There's a nurse who stoically tells her not to get in bed with him again. She dislodged his drains. More Beowulfian alliteration. She says it was meadow in a beautifully controlled chaos kind of way showing she's about one degree shy of unleashing her wrath. Tiny, tiny details. Masterclass stuff. The nurse bristles as she walks out. The judgment is worn like a billboard across her face. Carmela comments on how cold it is, which of course is slightly ominous and somewhat of a dig 
on the person that was in the room before her. She nestles back in with her Sue Grafton book. The camera approaches Tony, and we cut to Costa Mesa. With Carm asking, what are you still doing there? A continuation, perhaps, of her internal monologue as she reads next to Tony. Hours two. The beacon's going strong, almost as if it's announcing a last call or something. He begins to tell her about the fall, but he can't break the real news to her. He almost does for a beat, but says it's a mild concussion. Why didn't he fess up? This was just like the Tony we know, too, by the way. Stalling in the kitchen over cold cuts wrapped in butcher paper. Like New Jersey Carmela, this Costa Mesa version is suspect. Unlike New Jersey Carmela, though, this one persists, believing she'll get a straight answer. While she's talking, he pulls out a sheet of paper from the briefcase that reads, Finnerty Family Reunion. More alliteration. The destination reads, in at the Oaks, Santiago Canyon Road, Irvine, California. Real location was a place in Morristown, New Jersey, though. Back to Dr. Ba, checking activity in Tony's eyes with light. Nice sleight of hand from a metaphorical beacon to a literal one. Then cut to Chris, JT, Little Carmine, Patsy. Not exactly a Musso and Frank's vibe, but this is their own version of that Hollywood deal-making venue. Chris introduces Carmine as his co-executive producer on the project. Again, Chris called out JT for appropriating lingo, but now he's dropping dimes, fresh off spending a couple hours on nofilmschool.com. Also in the room, Vito, Benny, Silvio, Alley Boy, Murmur, and a new guy we've never seen before, standing in the back. Guys we've never seen before standing in the back reminds me of Livia's post-funeral gathering at the Soprano residence in Proshai Lavushka. Carmine warns JT that he's very hands-on. Learned that the hard way. He mean his dad? Made me wonder what's worse. A guy that tells you he's hands-on up front or one that says he isn't but is. Guys are drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee another subtle indicator of the difference between this investor pitch and some others in the biz. Note Carmine's suit, the shades of pink. Jay Gatsby over here. Carmine addresses the room as possible investors in the project. More lingo. He goes on to say he's had nine pictures under his subspecies. I think he meant to say auspices, or imprint. But honestly, Carmine can malaprop every word in the English language. And we could spend a lifetime enjoying what he meant or might have meant. Four of those nine were in the South Beach Strumpet series alone. Strumpet is another word for prostitute. Note on that beat, JT with a gash over his eyebrow, doesn't look happy, looks imprisoned, and wants nothing more than a shower to wash off the residue of the room he's in. Unclear whose house it is, but likely Carmine's, since he's running the meeting. It's not Silvio's based on what we saw of the inside of that one. 
could possibly be Alley Boys. But let's go with Carmine. Final answer. Rest in peace, Regis Philbin. Carmine goes on to say, each one of his titles has 30,000 DVDs in print. Sounds like a lot. But how many of those, I wondered, are still tied up in inventory? So, JT begins the pitch. A new kind of slasher film. Slashers are a subgenre of horror films. Multiple people usually die at the hands of a sharp object-wielding antagonist. Think Psycho, Halloween, Scream. Just as he gets going, about to apply some nuance to the pitch, Chris cuts him off. It's about a wise guy with a big mouth and bigger dreams. Anyway, um... Guy's in a hurry. This whole thing has the makings of a last chance power drive. JT describes a character known as the Butcher. Sill immediately objects to the name, something about a certain butcher out of Atlantic City. Also, gangs in New York, maybe? I feel like Daniel Day-Lewis retired that name, put it up in the rafters. Chris pushes back against Silvio, but something clicks when he mentions Atlantic City. So Butcher's out. First note on the project. Since everybody's tossing lingo around over here, figured I'd join in. Back on the protagonist, Guy's outshining his boss. Didn't he read the 48 Laws of Power? That's rule number one. He gets clipped because of it, but he's still alive when they cut him up. His body reassembles itself, everything except a hand. So he ties a cleaver to the stump and goes out to get revenge, including on the boss. Cut to Chris looking as proud as ever. Working title, Pork Store Cleaver. But JT recommends just Cleaver. JT's a fucking pro, man. Chris found his thoroughbred. Or a name whisperer at the very least. Then the guys start asking profound questions. Isn't he dead? He wouldn't be dumped all in the same place. Zombies? Ghosts? Sill questions the genre. He very astutely points out slashers are a couple of kids by a lake. Certified maniac on the loose. Not a ghost. He's hung up on the nuance between Michael Myers and Jason and Freddy. Michael Myers was an escaped mental patient. Those other guys, different kind of movie. At which point I'm asking myself, get Father Phil in here to settle this. Chris says they're riding the coattails of Saw, the ring. They made millions. And that's without the Godfather angle which these guys bring to the table in spades. On that, Patsy's blown away. In a, you had me at hello, Chris, kind of way. Then Benny. What if? The earth stops. And every single person in the room stops to turn their heads and lock in on him. Like in a, didn't you used to wait in the car? kind of way. Also, not saying Benny's throwing off Michael Corleone vibes, but in one, when he speaks up for the first time in regards to what to do about Solazzo, the room gets eerily quiet in a similar fashion. Alas, his point, have the protagonist be disposed of at different stops on the same route. That's how all his parts will end up in the same dump. Not quite as high-level thinking as Michael, 
But there's enough of a parallel to point it out. Vito's hung up on the ghost thing to which Chris offers up Ghostbusters. Another fucking money machine. He's right there too. 300 million at the box office. That was in 1984. That's like three quarters of a billion dollars today. Cut back to the hospital. And there he is. Artie. Dressed down in with food. A little Vesuvio's to go. Sees Carm. Says the cavalry's here. Loaded. He mean press? The crew? Both? He brought Cannelloni. Again. Indicating he'd been there. We just didn't get to see him. Cannelloni are those large, cylinder-shaped pastas that you can stuff. It's got bechamel, the sauce, on it. Five or six hours out of the fridge, tops, he says, because of the butter. Recall, of course, how Artie feels about rancid hits of butter, or ghee. Reminds me, I had some Roscoe's chicken and waffles delivered for the playoffs over the weekend. So good. But out of the fridge? Same thing. Five or six hours, tops. Paulie walks up, pinches Artie's cheek. He does, after all, know him from when he was a kid. He's doing a signature laugh. <laughs> Calls Carmela plucky. What a word choice. Means courage in the face of sustained difficulty. And again, assigning it to the perfect person at the perfect moment. His shirt, that red, black, and white number, one of his best looks, I'd say off memory. And in a hospital ward of all places. He's walking gingerly still, and his affection's clearly forced. He's mythologizing his inner narrative through his eyes right in front of Carmela. Impressive, since the guy's not even a writer. He wants FaceTime with the skip, but she says the hospital gets pissed off. This, after Silvio got some time with him. She picking favorites now. Then they both see a TV thing on A&E talking about the shooting and Junior. It's the footage from AJ from last episode. Growing up Soprano is just plain weird. Blares across the hospital lobby and no doubt countless homes across the country. I mean, those that watch A&E when the Sopranos isn't on it. Speaking of, they, A&E that is, paid $195 million to air edited versions of the show. $2.5 million per episode for a pared-down product. A lot of moxie for their size, that A&E. But I will say, though it's not necessarily my cup of tea, even an edited version of The Sopranos is better than 99.8% of the stuff that's out there today. Anyway, the Marvin Gaye correlation is mentioned again. And Polly and Carmela are locked in. But wait, he ever hand her that package? Saved by the bell? Or in this case, Bill Curtis? Cut to Carmela storming in the house. Hugh and Mary on the couch, both wearing what's with her kind of faces. Also, the two of them together like that, staring blankly at each other in a socially distant way. Love and marriage personified. Incidentally, they're watching a Big Lots commercial that's asking, what's your deal today? 
There are those tiny details again. Carm goes straight to AJ. She looks like she's going to kill him. What a 180. Remember back to how she about-faced him to Roe just an episode ago. Production note, the back of his door, there's a Sugar Cult Start Static poster. Sugar Cult's a pop rock band out of Santa Barbara, and Start Static was their third studio album. There's a track on that album called Daddy's Little Defect. Everything's intentional. AJ nonchalantly defends himself, says he was misquoted. Meadow comes running in, so do the grandparents. You are a cross to bear. That's all you are to your father, to me, to everybody. Fuck this! Will she live to regret that? AJ says fuck this and storms off. Can't take the heat, but unlike Tony, no panic attack here. A defensive Hugh asks, Jesus, Mel, what the hell's wrong with you? Always wrestled with who was right here, and I've waffled a bit. As a parent now, I'm not sure I'd want my parent weighing in on my parenting. On the flip side, I can't help but think that Hugh's approach might have been effective too. But like basketball, or any major sport for that matter, we can't compare eras. Carmela storms into her room and slams the door. This imagery, of course, suggests that she too has reverted to a teenager in her parents' house after one of their domestic showdowns. I'm sure an equivalent one of those happened when her mother challenged her courtship with Tony. Remember that other guy she wanted her to marry? Wrapping up this scene, Meadow calmly contextualizes. It had to happen. She's fried. Again, Meadow's like a floor general on the court with this family. And she's at the epicenter of this hospital sojourn being successful. Cut to Sill at home. Polka dot bathrobe. Gabby's asking if he's getting any extra compensation for what he's been going through. Feels like she wants to maybe plunk down on something big soon. Even she's looking out for number one. He shrugs it off. Part of the job. Mentions Vito called him Skip. That sat with him. She persists, like Embiid in the paint, relentlessly working his way to the basket. Asks if it was permanent. Would his compensation go through the roof? He stops her in her tracks, like Matumbo's finger wag or something. Their doorbell rings. She answers again. It's Bobby. Another nice shirt. The white with black pattern. Everybody's fashion this episode is up a notch. Almost like they're auditioning for something. She asks him to keep it short, guard dog style. Which in its own way, given what she said earlier about Syl not being obnoxious, is kind of hilarious. Think about how Carmela received people at the door for Tony. Yes, even people that weren't Furio. Bobby's freaking out about the Roseville thing. Still, he's got to pay for private school over here. Silvio hits the inhaler, says mornings are better. To which I thought, but still, there's no punching the clock on this boss thing. It's 24-7. Bobby storms out like a runaway train. Not quite as graceful as the Soul Asylum track, but how on point is that fucking reference? Cut to Carmella in Melfi's office. There's a curveball. What happened to I've got plenty of people to talk to? 
also makes you think back to Melfi's face after Carmela said that to her inside the Pathmark. It was like, I've heard that before, and I'll see you in a chair across from me by the end of the week. Can't help but think she was licking her chops when she penciled this appointment down. The initial frame and contrast is striking. Melfi, built up, statuesque, and strong. Carmela, broken down, melting into her chair. Carm says she removed all the firearms in the house after what happened. Strange, but in a way I kind of heard that after the 20th viewing as putting her hands up. She came into this saloon unarmed, like Tony putting the briefcase down earlier. She came here to have a legitimate, all-hands-on-deck, tete-a-tete. She says she said something very cruel to AJ. See, she couldn't even wait a day. That's how guilty she feels over it. For the record, I can totally relate to that now. They have to face all these years of, of facading. They do or you do. Powerful moment. The tone in the room. That high-pitched hum. Intentional. Uncomfortable. She continues. Her first date with Tony, he bought her and her mother a dozen roses each. And her dad a $200 power drill. And I don't know if I loved him in spite of it. Or because of it. How powerful was that? But that's as far as she can go before justifying it all. She says there are far bigger crooks than her husband. Be that as it may. Be that as it may. She defends him because it serves her. Another one who's out for number one, sadly. Granted, she has the strongest claim to anything over any of these guys. Recall the free pass conversation she had with her parents in an episode where she wrestled most strenuously with these very same questions. The episode was called Second Opinion. Then she breaks down again, seesawing back and forth, breaking out of this mold, this artifice she's built up for herself all these years, back on the kids, saying they don't decide who they're born to, trying to figure out another way to rationalize this heap of bullshit she's been stacking up over the last two decades. Melfi knows this. That's why the brevity of her response is so powerful and meaningful. So now what? Yeah, that's just it. Now what? It's all out in the open now, the whole thing. And them, you know, they're not in grade school anymore. They become, you know, the longer they stay with us, complicit. <gasps> God. She says she told Tony she loved him the second day of his coma. Hasn't said that in forever. Melfi wonders if she'll feel that way when he wakes up. Note, she says when, not if. But she massages the word when a little. Super subtle. Again, the tender and care with which we're being guided through this episode commands that we pay attention to the intricacies on every beat. Carm can't answer. A lot of truth both ways. And I'm sure that's a huge paradox a lot of us have either faced or will face at some point. Cut to Silvio's house, exterior, getting wheeled out by a team of paramedics. 
a different robe this time. I'm sorry, I know the circumstances are dire here, but that's hilarious. A different fucking robe, not 12 hours later. Silvio and the disciples of robes over here. He's repeating, can't breathe. Neighbors looking on, as neighbors never fail to do. Then Bobby pulls up in an older Pontiac, making concessions for private school? Or maybe trade-offs for his collection of Lionels? Yeah, that's probably it. Makes sense now why he came at Silvio with such urgency. He used his children's education as a prop to further his passion for railroading. Note the license plate on his car starts with K.O. That could prove prescient for Soprano home movies coming up. Bobby doesn't ask how he's doing. The situation could be critical, life and death. But as I learned from watching the movie Unstoppable with my son recently, stopping a runaway train is hard, requires a performance of Denzelian heights. Bobby jumps straight into it. I didn't hear from you. All you need to know about Bobby in a fucking nutshell. Poster boy for anybody with an agenda and myopia. And, I suppose, someone with a Janus waiting for him at home to answer to. Cut to Alley Boy and Vito inside the hospital enjoying a picnic or some shit. There's a basket with apples, bagels, bialis, coffee, and an energy drink of some kind by Vito. A stacker, too. They made products that competed with 5-Hour Energy but lost a lawsuit to them for infringement. Those little five-hour vials packed a big punch, in more ways than one, it seems. Vito says Sills on the canvas now, always with the scenarios. But hey, if they're boxing scenarios, I say keep them coming. Somebody's going to have to step into the breach, he says. This guy's channeling his inner King Henry over here. Also reminds me of the use of that line in Goodwill Hunting, Will and Sean outside on the park bench. No picnic set up for them, though. No Anne of Avonlea over here for those two. So Vito nominates himself again, a young, healthy man with longevity. And gotta say, A plus motherfucking hand gestures. Note, as he says, healthy man with longevity, the camera has slowly moved to reveal there are oranges in that basket. Love that detail. Alley Boy toes the line, preserving his optionality, if you will. Old school enough to know a thing or two about that. And we cut to Vito in the cafeteria, eyeing sandwiches. That actually kind of works. Gotta say, I've been doing some intermittent fasting this year, trying different intervals and stuff, and early in the process, just looking at stuff when I got hungry, pacified me. Carm comes up, says Sills at St. Barnabas. It's an actual place in Livingston, New Jersey, a top hospital in the country, actually. Certainly one of the notches on its belt, getting Silvio's respiratory issues under control. Guy's got a business to run. Vito calls Carm sweetheart. Colloquially, it fits. I get it. But I always thought, a lot of balls. He mentions her package. His real born identity about it. Mentions people looking over our shoulders right now. Now, Vito isn't exactly the poster boy for clandestine activity, but he did come 
from literally out of nowhere in broad daylight to clip Jackie Jr. So who knows? But wait a minute. You think that's why she tracked him down in the cafeteria? To remind him of his duty to deliver that package? It's a reach, but if so, wow. She says money's no issue right now. She's got bigger fish to fry, like her son, and Tony's health and well-being. Great tactical deflection, perhaps. Whatever the case, how fucking relieved is Vito? He gets her coffee, the least he can do. Also worth noting, like Bobby, with Silvio, he pays no notice to her troubles and mention of AJ. Sticks strictly to his agenda. To quote Carmela, he's another one. Cut to Meadow walking the hospital corridors with Polly. She's coaching Polly like it's pregame. Positive talk only. And what does he do? Right out of the jump? Oh, Maron, he looks terrible. Okay, Polly, you can't say She leaves him to get Finn, reminds him to stay positive. His face is anything but. But he sits down next to Tony, can't believe his eyes. First thing out of his mouth, I gotta wear a jock, the doc says. An open sesame. The floodgates are full steam. Cut to Tony's heart rate monitor. Was at 138? Immediately jumps to 140. Blood pressure's 121 over 77. Jumps to 124 over 79. Heart rate continues its climb to 148, then 150, then 151. Paulie keeps going, talking about himself and his balls. This just after Meadow called the outgoing nurse a ball breaker. Catch how he recoiled at that? One ball breaker in his life's enough. He continues. When he was in the service, he did a four-year stint in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, by the way. He won the chin-up cups three weeks in a row. There's that number three. Says he was asked to model for the boxing poster. But now? Yeah, look at this. Fucking wrinkles like an old lady's cunt. The writers had too much fun with this scene, and we were the lucky recipients. U.S. Army Signal Corps, by the way, is a branch of the U.S. Army that runs and coordinates communications inter- and intra-army. Kind of funny when you think about it. Paulie, a part of a branch of the military, tasked with playing telephone, essentially. Now the monitor reads, tachycardia, all caps, 154. Tachycardia is the medical term for a high heartbeat rate. Cut to Finn, coming out of an elevator. Right there, I always wondered, did Finn bring the Ojibwe saying? You know, that California bullshit. Guy can't catch a break. He's immediately intercepted by Vito. Phineas Fogg, back in town. Of course, that's a malaprop of Phileas Fogg, a character in Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. Also reminds me of the song The Boys Are Back in Town by Thin Lizzy. Great fit for this moment with the lyric, guess who just got back today? Hard to tell who's happier, Meadow or Vito. The way Vito awkwardly rubs his arm and grabs his wrist reminds you, oh yeah, there's that other thing going on with Vito too. But back on Pauly, still going, 100 miles an hour, brings up pussy out of nowhere, FBI rat fuck. Now the monitor's flashing red and beeping. Undeterred, 
and perhaps oblivious, he continues. Cut to, and this is one of my favorite designs of this episode and the series in general. The shit that happens, like we'll puss. Stand up one day, FBI rat fuck the next. I felt it hit, T. I felt it right here. Will you please shut up in there? Costa Mesa Tony, shirtless, with a towel draped over his shoulder. Just a great exemplar of Bardo tachycardia. He's knocking on the wall to the people next to him. Will you please shut up in there? What's more awkward, I wondered? Being on the receiving end of that knock or having to give that knock? He's getting directions to the inn, left on Jamboree, out towards the beacon. Kind of fitting that the party of his life, literally speaking, would be on a street called Jamboree. He asks what we've been wondering for an episode and a half. And for many of you, dear listeners, for decades. What's that beacon anyway? He hears the answer, or starts to, but then rages on that wall to shut up God again. Damn it! Shut up! Get up in there! Oh, I said to mine. Fucking Paulie. They were about to tell us. Lay it out for us on a silver fucking platter. But he had to ruin the moment. Cut back to Paulie and Tony's monitor, now 213. Where's the nurse? Isn't that the purpose of those monitors? To ping them? She finally comes, pages Dr. Budraja Stat. Note the essence of that name. Budraja. The first part, Buddha. Second part, King. Also note, she was paged to room three. There's three again. And as clear an indicator as you'll get that things of consequence, certainly life and death, meaning and understanding, occur around the number three. Paulie tells the nurse not to leave and himself jumps up. The same way the entire Dallas Mavericks bench did when Luka Doncic hopped on one leg to the locker room after turning his ankle against the Clippers in the playoffs. A big yellow machine gets wheeled in, conveying finality in some form or other. Finn and Meadow run in. The medical team boards and bags Tony, prepping him for the bolts of lightning he's about to receive. Meadow yells out, oh my God, is he dying? Paulie's distraught, backs away, out of the frame. Felt like he actually might have left. Bobby comes running in. Janice too. They give Tony 150 milligrams of a medication used to treat irregular heartbeats. Someone yells cardiovert at 100. Cardioversion is the clinical word for the procedure of sending electric shocks to your heart. They ask to clear the room and they defibrillate him. That's delivering an electrical shock to reestablish an effective heart rhythm. His blood pressure continues dropping, so they amp up the voltage. Clear. Now, think about this from a creative standpoint for a second. They've got to pack finality, imminence, obfuscation, fear, hope, goodbyes in a succession of rapid sequences without being overworked, cliche, or trite. They've got to make us hang on every word, every cut. And I think the way they frame it around the bardo is simply brilliant. It's orchestral, crescendos and diminuendos, all tightly controlled and measured. Back in the bardo, 
the cardio version is presented as thunder and lightning. This as he drives to the inn, which is a well-lit house, light at the end of the tunnel, at the risk of falling down a cliché chute I may never climb out of. Could be Kevin McAllister's home in the country, assuming they had one of those. Certainly could be validated if Vin McKazian pops up again like he did in Test Dream. Every window's lit with something going on on the inside of it. Not unlike the scene in Home Alone where Kevin McAllister lights up the house with cutouts of people, among them Michael Jordan, moving around on a train track. Holiday lights adorning the hedges and trees. There's music. Mariachi music, to be precise. La Feria de las Flores, or Festival of the Flowers. There's kids running around outside, and we see a man with his back turned to Tony. Tony approaches him. Excuse me, is this the Finnerty reunion? It's revealed to be, of course, Steve Buscemi. Credited simply as man. He's wearing a tux. He knows who Tony is immediately. Says they're waiting for you. A roulette table of possibilities as to what that means. This Tony, though, has no clue who's standing before him. No connective past of any kind. Has Kevin Finnerty arrived? Which is immediately met with, we don't talk like that here. What? That we don't speak about ourselves in the third person? That we don't say the word arrived? He says your family's inside. You're going home. Where? Is that a stairway to heaven? A stairway back to North Jersey? Are the two mutually exclusive? There's a woman at the door that almost looks like Livia. But she turns before we can see her. Like the woman in that dream when he's an immigrant worker. Season 4, Calling All Cars, I believe. Even in these in-betweens or dreams or whatever the fucks, she's Livia. Won't throw him a bone. Give him a break. The man continues, everyone's in there. All this messaging of possibility or expansive, spiritual, conceptual stuff. As he heads up the staircase, the man touches his arm. You can't bring business in there. That suitcase has got to stay. That baggage, that bullshit, that weight, that load, that burden, that past. Then he hears a girl calling for her daddy. We, of course, know it's Meadow. His eyes are welling up. Then he hears a don't go, daddy, coming through the rustling wind. The man tries again to take the briefcase from him. Says it looks like it weighs a ton. As true a statement as you'll find. The weight of the bricks we carry around with us. Some of us, at least. But Tony doesn't want to let go. He doesn't want to let go of the business, the baggage, the bullshit, the weight, the load, the burden, the past. Because, well, that's life. And quite frankly, the sound of your kid's voice really does trump all that other shit. Even when you're locked up with them for multiple months. The Grim Reaper, polite as this incarnation of him is, persists. You need to let it go. The line, my whole life's in that case, from last episode, that line manifests here and now. 
it crystallizes. Then the man crowds him, like Tony crowded Tony B outside Satrial's. Remember that? Symmetry. The wind is louder, carrying Tony and us through the home stretch of this episode. The wind, ladies and gentlemen, is life, home, family. And like wind, it doesn't move in a straight line. An interesting reminder that maybe you'll get where you're supposed to go, but you're going to detour certain places along the way. And that's just kind of the way it is. So what's the use in going about in pity for yourself over it? He approaches the steps to the door, says he's scared. Scared of what? Staying or going? The man says there's nothing to be scared of. If it's Tony B, he'd know. Then he makes a final attempt to take it. They're both holding it at the same time. The man's hand doubling as a figurative scythe. Tug of war with the Grim Reaper. What are the odds, generally speaking? Unorthodox Grim Reaper, sure. More like something you might see alongside Al Pacino as John Milton in The Devil's Advocate. But then, the room inside brightens and then whites out completely. And we're back to North Jersey. And for the first time, we're in our own sort of bardo, not knowing whether Tony's here or gone. He flatlines. It's white. Meadows pleading with him. Then she and Carmela come into focus. Things start beeping like normal again. His eyes open, and they lock on Meadow. He came back. For her. I believe that. Especially now as a dad. The burdens, the shit, the struggle, the challenge, the heartache, the letdowns, the regularness of life. All pales in comparison to when we are called on by our children. In the waiting area, Paulie's recounting what happened to the guys. Paulie's trying to blame it on the doctors. Always assigning blame, this fucking guy. This as he snuck away. Then Bobby comes up, as excited as he might be playing with his trains. Everything's okay. He's mostly excited because now he can complain to Tony about Roseville instead of Sylvia. He's about to leverage that earned nepotism. Note that everybody's happy, except Vito, who, cut two, is crushing a bag of baby carrots. When the doorbell rings, it's Polly, the bags of money. Polly wants to get Carmela her cut ASAP, but Vito says it's a guilty move. The angling of this guy. But Polly's paranoia rules the day. Who knows what's already been said if they haven't already been complained about? Cut to Carm, who's feeding Tony ice. Tubes are out, but he can't talk yet because it'll take some time to heal. Carmela with the jokes. Maybe we should consider ourselves lucky there. Roe attributes some of this to her prayers, maybe now freeing up some time for her to get back into bingo. Finn's in the room, feeling his purple shirt, by the way. Then Tony signals for Carm to come closer. He asks, I'm dead, right? No. No, you're in the hospital. With all of us. In Newark. Cut to Carm walking out to Polly and Vito, waiting on hand. How's he doing, sweetheart? Again. Feels off color, but it's probably just me. Not sure if he's out of the woods yet, but hanging in, she says. 
wonder how she'd feel if she knew it was Pauly that put him in said woods in the first place with all his complaining. She says he just passed his first simple mental acuity test. Kind of funny, right? How mental acuity tests have gotten a new lease on life in the zeitgeist of 2020. And then they present her with a little something, the financial package they've been talking about all episode. Right in front of the whole hospital. What about your whole born identity spiel to her earlier, Vito? Discretion, stealth, prudence. She takes it and walks away. Holds it like a tray of baked ziti fresh out of the oven. Then she looks back at them, looking down and solemn as they enter the elevator. And she changes. From a smile to a look of suspicion and borderline horror. An instant transformation happened right there. She went from a grieving, worried wife to someone reckoning with what Melfi said. Are you going to feel the same feelings when Tony comes around? Chris is inside talking to Tony, who's sitting up for the first time. There's saxophone music playing. It's called When You Dance by the Turbans. Tony's coming along, but looks like a mess. Chris looks pleased. Pleased that Tony's up and on the men, sure, but also because he's got an ask that he can't get a no to. He looks around, notices the pin board. There's a card from folks at the Bing, including Georgie. Guess he didn't quit after all. Some other well-wishers. And then a three-by-five card with that Ojibwe saying. Sometimes I go about in pity for myself. And all the while, a great wind carries me across the sky. Chris reads it aloud, asks T, Indians, right? Tony looks at it, makes the same face a lot of us did the first time we saw it and heard it. I've carried it with me ever since the show. It's an expression that symbolizes unselfishness. Get out of your own head. Take a moment and gather yourself. Or if you're James Harden, take several moments to gather yourself. But seriously, it's a humbling statement offered up in a universe filled with guys that are the exact opposite. And that's communicated to us in the way Christopher reads it, as nothing more than a billboard encountered while sitting in traffic. To go back to Livia, her nihilism, Nietzsche, and the until now unifying theme of the show that it's all a big fucking nothing, I think this saying is the exact counterbalance to that. And just that saying alone is sufficiently strong enough to suppress all that other shit. What's the point of it all? Of anything? Well, without doing an injustice to the brevity and wisdom of the Ojibwe saying exactly what it says. So, who put this up? Perhaps a question more vexing than the primary one. What becomes of T? Certainly not one of the guys. Certainly not Christopher, who, to use the word autopsy used to describe the next sequence, undercuts the sentiment to push his own agenda on a diminished Tony. Great word choice, Ron. Who put this up? Janice? Finn? Dr. Melfi? In a late night drop in? That would be my favorite, gotta say. T keeps looking at it, but can't answer. 
he might be thinking the same thing we are. Chris allows what he believes to be enough silence to get down to business. But he gets up and talks to him from behind because he can't face him. Says he's going to take another run at the movie business. He wants T to be an investor. We'll own the neg. Again with the lingo. Guy made flashcards or something. I'm holding a large ownership position for you. I hope you approve. Now, Somewhere Over the Rainbow is playing. This version is by a group called The Mystics. The original, of course, is from The Wizard of Oz and won an Oscar. Then, this. Frankly, all due respect, I think you owe me this because I came to you about Adriana. Always wondered if he says that if he knows Tony could answer back. Finally, Carm comes in. Chris leaves. I don't know how you do it as she plunks the envelope down on the table. This thing of ours is real, girl, he's thinking. She puts Vaseline on his lips, the simple things. The music ratchets up. Tony went somewhere over the rainbow, but he's back. Fade to black. So we got a couple things back and a couple things taken away here. Tony's sticking around, at least for a while. We got to ponder and reflect questions about ourselves and our own lives over the last two episodes. Who are we? Where are we going? What gets taken away is the way we look at the show forever. It's reached another level. It's now fully transcended its medium, if you will. It's always been self-aware, self-deprecating, unapologetic. But now it's interplanetary. Its concerns and interests are far greater and meaningful than the regularness of life. It's reached what the Beastie Boys might call intergalactic planetary. It's reached a place worthy of a fireside chat with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And the best part? We've still got a ways to go. And even though Tony doesn't seem happy he's back, we are. That's all I got. Thank you for listening. See you next time.